0: This is Todd Raines, Managing Editor at New England Urban Church Planting. The following audio is from Urban Hope, How Gospel Churches Bring New Hope to Forgotten Neighbourhoods, a conference held online in February of 2021. Visit newchurchplanting.org to learn more about our work and upcoming events. We're just going to look uh, this session at um, evangelism. So uh, let's pray, Lord. We love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this technology that allows us to to discuss these issues, uh, to, to 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 for us to get together from all around the world to think about what you say about important issues for us in our ministry in some of uh, the world's most difficult places. So bless us, Lord. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So. Um, I'll, I'll speak from the context of the UK, obviously, particularly Scotland, and then um, you guys can sort of extrapolate the principles that are true or not for your communities. Um, in our country, you can go probably to uh, any city centre and you can, you know, have a pick of uh, one or two decent churches at the very least. You, the same cannot be said for the poorest parts of uh, our lands. And if the Christian church, evangelical church, keeps going in its current direction, then the poor will have absolutely no access at all to gospel-preaching churches, while the middle classes uh, will be the ones with all the choice. Thomas Chalmers uh, um, said in the early 1800s to a group of middle-class ministers and his theological faculty, he said, We're told by experts that Scotland is falling below 2% Christian, and suddenly... He says, there's a great panic about it. Well, he said, the schemes of Scotland have been well below 1% for many decades and not a sniff of indignation has been heard by the church of Jesus Christ. And I suppose my question uh, for us is, where are our Thomas Chalmers? Where are our Knoxes, our Guthrie's, our William Booth's, our Whitfield's, our Spurgeon's? Where are our great evangelical warriors raging against the injustice of the world and imploring the church to do her duty by caring for the sick, the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And there is a, a worldwide resurgence of church planting and revitalization going on right now, and, it sh- and so there should be, and it's to be applauded. But where is it really effectively among the poor and the needy? Where is it in the darkest places of our lands, uh, communities that are held in sway to mediums, witchcraft, spiritism, and paganism. You see, religion is not dead in our poorest communities, it's the local church that is. There are no worships, uh, wars going on, there are no debates about social justice or women in, in ministry. Nobody is arguing about which version of the Bible is closest to the original text. There are no issues on uh, the primacy of preaching or whether we should baptize babies. And the reason for that is because there is nobody there. The gospel isn't there. The church isn't there. They're in city centers holding conferences about social justice over tea and expensive biscuits. And the, and the gospel landscape in hard places, is now as bleak as it's it's ever been. City missions are are generally in decline across the UK. I think London City Mission and others might be the exception. But uh, certainly in Scotland, they have uh, slowly but surely sold off or handed over all their stock or old mission halls. Some of these places have have tried to go it alone, and, and others, like Nidri, have established churches but they are very few and very far between. And in the main, these old mission halls and old school churches, their congregations have become elderly. They've become completely detached from their surrounding culture. And they are either in their death throes or they're closing at alarming rates. And what is left in the schemes in terms of local churches is decidedly mixed and often polarizing. And so on the one side, we have the small, theologically conservative evangelical churches that have historically uh, fought for uh, theological and doctrinal purity at the expense of cultural engagement for for fear of watering the gospel down. They now, by and large, find themselves on the fringes of the schemes, uh, as I said earlier, with aging, dying congregations uh, and not knowing what to do. And with most of that aging membership actually living miles away from the community that their building's even in. And then, so, so with these guys, they've got the gospel, but they've got nobody to preach it to. And on the other hand, we have churches that have sought historically to adapt to the culture, and I uh, have absolutely no clue about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or they don't even believe it. They don't even believe in that the Bible is the word of God. They don't believe in the historical, factual resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They despise evangelism. They see it as proselytizing. They see it as, uh, uh, as one church of Scotland minister put it, uh, uh, you see it as recruiting for our evangelical cults. And these, these uh culturally savvy, so they reckon churches may be very socially aware, but ironically, their congregations too are aged and dying. They're burying more than they're baptizing, and they're they're viewed as little more than social work agencies. And so the reality is that both sides, if you like, of this polarized theological spectrum, uh, both sides are the real losers because the very people they're supposed to be reaching with the, gospel of the good, uh, with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not reaching them. They're not reaching the poor or the marginalized. And so while churches across denominational and, and theological divides have been drawing their doctrinal lines, many thousands, millions of souls have been perishing for a lack of gospel witness in our communities. And in the words of some old dead bloke, a plague on both your houses. Now, so here's what it looks like on the ground. Let's take Jim. Jim goes to a little gospel hall in his scheme. Now, they preach the gospel every week. He's been going there for 50 years. He remembers the day, Jim, when it was packed to the rafters and the children's ministry had hundreds in attendance and the members would knock on doors and hand out tracts and people would come along on a sunday and they'd hear their guest speakers from out of town but that doesn't happen anymore in jim's little mission it hasn't happened for very many decades in fact gentrification ironically has killed their church many of the poor many of the original old school members who would have been in attendance have now been forcibly rehoused to make way for new property developments in fact there's only about 10 of them now left in jim's church and he's the youngest and he's in his 70s the rest of them have died or left long ago it's hard to get out and knock on doors anymore Besides, anyway, everybody is old or feeble and nobody answers the doors these days anyway. They try to run guest services, but they can't book speakers to come. They can't pay them. And besides, the people they know are too old to come. They had a young couple in their 50s come along once, but they never came back. And they need somebody to come and help them, but who's gonna come to a scheme and take them on? And then we have Anne. Anne, uh, she goes to the local parish church. It, It doesn't preach the gospel. But then again, she doesn't know the gospel and she wouldn't notice that it's not being preached. She's been faithful to her parish church for a long time. She was baptized there as a baby. She loves the church. She loves the minister's little homilies on a Sunday and it makes a nice break in her week. She helps out at the jumble sale. When she can, and she's got her name on the t And uh, She's never ever thought to invite her Indian neighbors uh, to church because her vicar says that we're all God's children anyway, and we're all worshiping the same God just by different names. And there's only a few of them left now on Sundays, but the vicar sits on the, uh, a lot of local council community committees, and so she thinks everything must be okay. Then we've got Gary. Gary's in his late 20s, and Gary's got a real heart to reach the lost in the schemes. He works for a a Christian charity, and his job is to be a care worker for some of their clients, a a key worker. That means he takes them to the doctors uh, for their appointments, or he he takes them to see their social worker. He ensures that they're properly settled into their community-assisted accommodation. Gary knows a lot of people in the scheme. He loves a lot of people through his clients, and a few of them know he's a Christian, but they don't really know what that means because Gary is never very forthcoming about it. And even if he wanted to be forthcoming, Gary's not allowed to share his faith because it's against uh, the guidelines of the organization. And he'd probably get into trouble with his bosses. And his bosses would probably, if it was discovered that they were evangelizing local people, these bosses, his organization would probably lose their government funding. And so he's caught in this trap. And so it's just easier to keep quiet for Gary, to be honest. And he's been a good witness uh, anyway, and he's just trying to love his clients and show them the love of Jesus by doing that. And so what happens in this scenario is that Jim judges Anne and her church for not being concerned with the eternal destiny of people's souls. I mean, after all, what's the point, Jim thinks, of being nice to people if they're going to hell? and looks at Jim and his people with disgust. How can they believe all that fire and brimstone stuff? That's not very loving, is it? Gary is annoyed with both of them and wonders why can't we just all get along? And the sad reality is that the people in all of these situations are trapped in a downward spiral. After all, how can people be evangelized if there's nobody to reach out to? How can people be saved if the gospel has been lost and doing good has replaced speaking truth? And the legacy of these three approaches is that Christianity is declining and all of them and all of us need a radical rethink on the nature of biblical evangelism. And so let's just do that briefly before we get into some practical elements. What is biblical evangelism? How does the Bible define it? So, whatever our purpose or whatever else we are, are, are doing in our poorest communities, our primary purpose as, as church pastors, as church planters, as leaders, as evangelical Bible believing Christians, our primary purpose must be to teach men, women, and children the Bible. Because it's the Bible that is the source of life and good and sound unhealthy doctrine. What we teach matters. And it matters for eternity. The poor need to hear the gospel ring out in our pulpits once again. They need to hear it while they're waiting for the bus or when they're in the supermarket. They need to hear it from their next door neighbors over the fence. They need to sit down with an open Bible and have somebody tell them what it means. And there are no shortcuts to teaching the gospel. And so evangelism at its very root is teaching people the truth about their perilous spiritual condition outside of Jesus and then introducing them to the good news that there is a way out, there is a way to escape God's coming wrath. And if we're going to teach them, if we're going to evangelize them, then we have to be present among them. Jim needs to be taught that biblical evangelism doesn't just happen when you hand out a tract and go on your way. The gospel hasn't been taught just because we've extended an invitation to somebody to come to a Sunday service. Anne needs to understand that evangelism is more than being nice and sitting on committees and helping out at the jumble sale. The scriptures have to be opened and they have to be explained in a meaningful way. That's how the Ethiopian eunuch came to understand and accept the truth in Acts chapter 8. Gary needs to know that the poor need Bible teachers more than they need debt counseling. You know, the most popular ministry we had for a while in Nidri a few years ago, obviously, culture and things change now, but is, uh, um, is our Wednesday ministry. Uh, no night, uh, sorry, it's no night. It's our Wednesday night, no frills Bible study. All we do, people come to my house, 20 to 30 of us, sit down together for a couple of hours and we work verse by verse through a Bible book. See, the greatest need among Scotland's poorest, among the UK's poorest, among the world's poorest, the greatest need is for faithful Bible teachers. And so evangelism occurs when we open the Bible. But evangelism is more than just teaching people the gospel. Evangelism is also persuading people. So if you look, for example, in Acts chapter 17 and verses 2 through 4, we read this. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them. He's talking about the Jews. He reasoned them with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And so, of course, conversion is a work of God's spirit from start to finish. But Jim still needs to know that evangelism is not just an uh, an event you invite your friends along to. Nor is it a sort of spiritual drive-by when we just spray Bible verses at people and hope that some of them hit home. People need to be persuaded. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Paul says in our teaching, he says in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, in our teaching we must be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. We want to persuade people to bow the knee to King Jesus. We don't want to manipulate them uh, with fear or promises of, uh, of good things. You know, fear doesn't work in schemes anyway. Hope sells among our people. That's one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel finds poor communities such fertile grounds. But we need to be persuading people that the gospel that we're teaching them from the Bible is true. And here's the key. We can never hope to fully persuade them if we're only seeing them a couple of hours a week or in the uh, odds mercy ministry or drop-in center we do weekly. We, in order to be persuasive, we need to be present. Uh, uh, We need to live in such a way among people that they are forced to ask us about our faith. You know, we cannot transform sinners. We can only teach them the truth of the gospel and persuade them of those truths as we live before them. And the rest depends on prayer and on the sovereign electing grace of God's Holy Spirit. So very simply, evangelism is teaching the gospel and persuading people. So what's that going to look like on the ground? Let me give you some pointers. Number one. We need to be prepared to get involved in the mess of people's lives. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, in the United Kingdom anyway, the sort of evangelistic mindset in many churches was very different. Historically, in the UK at least, evangelism in churches almost exclusively focused on events. So evangelism was an event at your church building you invited your friends and neighbours along to. Mission, on the other hand, was something exotic done by special families or or, or single women who moved overseas. And 30 to 40 years ago, people would come to these events. But times have changed. And let me tell you that many of the churches who relied on that mode of evangelism have not changed with the times. And because of that, they're in real trouble. There are literally hundreds of little churches in schemes and council estates around the UK. Churches that have battened down the hatches and have slowly died off wonder why nobody comes to their events anymore. But you see, they forgot that the command in scripture has never been for the lost to come, but for the saved to go. And the great... uh, commission is a community affair from start to finish, from the youngest to the oldest. Doesn't matter whether you're as fit as a fiddle or whether you're in your 80s and you've got arthritis in all your joints. All of us, every member of a local church has a part to play in gospel ministry. But the problem is in our communities, uh, many well-meaning middle-class people and their agencies have hijacked the concept of missional living, and they've turned it into nothing more than being a good neighbor, or cleaning a skip, or painting a fence, or whatever. And some of these people in the, in the name and the cause of missional living have bought homes in our communities and moved into them. And, 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 and whilst they may be physically present, the issue is they're socially absent. Because missional living is more than buying a, a house, and being a good neighbor. It's more than befriending people. It's more than serving at a food bank. It's more than doing a children's club or a breakfast club for kids struggling to get food. It's more than helping a homeless person find accommodation. You know, when I read books on missional living today, um, or whatever phrase they use, living with evangelistic intentionality, I get very, very frustrated I've yet to read a book on this topic with the, with the, the title, Why Missional Living Sucks. Because the reality for people, uh, uh, for, of life for people in our communities is very complicated indeed. Once we begin to engage people with the gospel of Jesus their lives begin to open up to us. And once they begin to open up to us, we begin to realize just how messy their lives are and, incidentally, how messy ours is too. You know, we can't just give someone the gospel. Here you go. Have this. Take that. See you later. See you on Sunday. You know, this, give give them Jesus Give them a Bible and point them in the direction of the nearest church, and we'll do a webinar uh, on another time on on discipleship. You know, once we start engaging with people with the gospel, we're going to have to walk through life with them. People have got huge issues. All people, regardless of socio-economic. Background. And the good news actually is that you don't have to understand what scheme life is like or have been to prison or have been on drugs to understand the human heart because the human heart is sick and dark and sin filled through all cultures. What we need are biblically mature, biblically wise, faithful, bold warriors of the gospel prepared to open the Bible and teach people the hard truths about their sin and their need to repent. That's what we need in our day. And we need to remember that evangelism is about people, and not just events. And the battle in the early days of this church, when I came, I've been here 13 years now, was to help people view evangelism as a way of life uh, and, and, and part of the flow of our natural daily conversations. And I remember when I first came to this, this church, if you can call it that, and, 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 and at first some people in the church were not pleased. We, we stopped handing out tracts. We stopped knocking on doors. We stopped singing Christmas carols in the street. I remember the first year I was here and somebody said to me, Pastor, um, uh, we're going to sing Christmas carols in the street this year. Would you like to join us? And I said, no, I wouldn't like to join you. And I'd heard from some of the locals that, it was in a bit of an event, the old Christmas carol singing. They were, some of the people from this mission would go around the streets singing carols, and locals, kids would throw rocks at them and stuff. And they were like, it was a badge of honor. I said, listen, if you, anybody goes out onto the streets and sings carols this year, I'm going to throw rocks at you. I got rid of the tracts, about 47 different tracts, half of them in the AV language. The, the only thing they were, they were good for were making roaches for joints. I got rid of those things. People began to say, accuse me of killing evangelism. And yet when I asked these people, what do you mean by that? I've got rid of some tracks. I've stopped doing silly things. To explain to me how that's killing evangelism. I asked them, how many people are you engaging with in this community? And the answer was, wasn't very many, that the, 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 the full extent of their engagement was maybe knocking on their door, handing them a, a tract and inviting them to an event or a service. Here's the problem. That's not evangelism. Might be a step in the road to evangelism, but evangelism and discipleship even more so requires massive amounts of time, massive amounts of effort, and it requires more than many Uh, believers are often prepared to give. If you're not prepared to get involved in the mess of people's lives, then, you know, really, you're not going to be effective in evangelism in any way. Second point is this, and, and, and it's a really important point. Our churches need to be places where people live in genuine community. So let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 12. This is Paul obviously speaking to the church there. We're not looking for praise from people, speaking about himself and, and the apostles, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well. You get that? Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You were witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Look at verse 8 again. He, Paul says, delighted, listen, not only share the gospel, but to share their lives as well. He says almost exactly the same thing as he's leaving the uh, Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 18. And he, he, uh, we, we read there that how Paul uh, lived among them. He was their example that the church at Ephesus uh, learned Through hearing the gospel proclaimed, but also they learn from experiencing firsthand as they observed Paul living among them. And so we have two responsibilities in our evangelism. We've got to preach the words, proclaim it, and we have to live the words and model it. And that's the balance we have to seek. Again, when I took over at this work, I went to the first prayer meeting and there were about a dozen or so people there. They'd mostly been involved from outside the community, some of them for a lot of years. And I member halfway through the meeting, just stopping and saying, tell me a little bit about yourselves. And people started talking and I asked one guy, what does this guy over here do? Do you know what he does for a living? And he sort of told me what he did for a living. I said, do you know the names of his kids? He, he told me the names of his kids. Um, and then I said, um, I asked them, uh, how many unbelieving friends do you have in this community? And they started reading off names. And I said, don't you to read off names of people who come into your community cafe for a, a free buddy or use the food banks or whatever ministries were going on. I'm not asking you of people that you know their names, I'm asking you, how many genuine friends do you have in this community? People who've been to your house or been out with you for the crack, regularly in contact with you and will hang out together. And there was an embarrassed silence. I changed tack. Okay. What about the other believers in this small group, Christian group? Did you, do you hang out together? Yes, they said. Okay, uh, do you talk about Christ with one another when you hang out together? Yes, they said. Do you challenge one another's souls? Mm, it depends what you mean by that. that we, we challenge people theologically if we think they're believing something dodgy or, or doctrinally. I'm not asking you about that. Do you really know each other's spiritual struggles? Silence confusion. So Jim, you and Bob have been going to church for 10 years trying to be a witness in this community. What are each other's deepest, darkest struggles? When I discovered that these people trying to evangelize this community, trying to live together in community as they've been taught it from their middle class culture, actually didn't know very much all in knew quite a lot about the Bible. Some of them were very handy at theological debates and trying to correct falsehood, but they did not know each other in a real and personal way. And here's the problem. I suspect, well, I don't know, I suspect, 20 years in ministry, that's pretty much standard across evangelical churches. We have got no chance of reaching the lost with the gospel if we don't even communicate and live in genuine community together. If you can't talk to a Christian brother or sister about the Lord, about what he's doing in your life, about where you've been struggling, about what you would like prayer for, then what chance do you have? No wonder middle-class Christians can't reach out and talk to working-class people. They don't even know and talk to each other at any great depth. And the problem at Nidri Community Church when I, when, I, when I took it on was that they were making little or no impact on this community and it wasn't hard to see why. They were good at doing churchy stuff. They could do a good Sunday service and, a, you know, a five-hour kids talk and sing some songs clonking out on an old electric organ. But there was no sense of real open community life. They were doing and saying all the right things, but it all felt manufactured. Once in a while, they'd run an event for believers, they put on a good show, and then they'd go back to sit of being basically a group of relative strangers on a Sunday. So they had the gospel right, they were good at that, but they had no people to share it with. And again, let me be clear, there is a difference between being present in a community and having a presence in a community. People aren't dumb, by the way. We think we're calling people to in the Christian life. Leave your mates, leave all your tight social ties in this community, and why don't you come along to our church and sit in a room with a group of people you hardly know, listen to some guy go on for half an hour, 40 minutes, sing a couple of songs, and we'll see you again next week. You see, here's what the problem was. The problem was that Nidri at the time had imported their carefully crafted individualistic worldview and they brought it with them how they did church and they shoved it into the uh, the middle of a community they had no understanding about. And so I had to teach them then and and, and now that the local church must be seen as a network of living relationships rather than a set number of meetings to attend. That's why evangelism doesn't just take place at an individual one-on-one level, but it takes place at a community level also. What are we saying when we're inviting people to our church? What do you mean by that? What do your people mean by that? Do they mean come to our Sunday gathering? Do they mean come to this particular special event we're doing? Or are we inviting them to a community of sinners living life together? Because that is a hugely powerful apologetic. How unbelievers viewing our churches? How are our churches working and functioning? truly, in community? And so as leaders, we need to educate our people that evangelism is not a specialist topic, even though, obviously some are particularly gifted at it. Gospel living, living persuasive lives is an every person' participation. And people will learn and see and work out what does it mean to be a Christian, really? Rather than it's just some propositional truths, but this is what it looks like in a messy church community full of different kinds of people, different life experiences, different struggles, failing, falling, sinning, taking offense, causing offense, but all seeking to love one another, encourage one another, repent often, forgive often, be reconciled to one another you know community living is ugly because it's real community living is when people see us at our worst as well as at our best and uh, trust me in poor working class communities around the world people respond more to that than a polished presentation with tea and biscuits afterwards you know the joke in our country Uh, at least in our communities, about things like messy church is it's usually done and run with clean and organized precision. But a messy church, a a truly messy church, is not a clever marketing ploy to get unbelievers into the building, you know, yummy mummies. A messy church is actually what happens when we live together in genuine community and are involved intimately in one another's lives. Number three, don't underestimate the ordinary in our evangelism. And again, in Nidri, most of our evangelism and our discipleship actually gets done while giving someone a lift home. You know, seeing someone at the bus stop on, on your way and giving them, give them a lift at the supermarket, the post office. It happens during the 10 minute cigarette break. Uh, uh, outside the cafe, it happens at the gym. Uh, and again, evangelism doesn't necessarily start an end, sorry, with us having to do something, put something on. It starts with who we are, how we live our life, and how we incorporate naturally talking and sharing about Jesus with everybody that comes into our orb or sphere of influence. It's about us taking opportunities in our day with the people that we interact with. Instead of expecting people to come into our Christian community, we should be going out and engaging with people in theirs. And our policy at our church is we never start something that our community already offers. It makes more sense and less work, frankly, for Christians to join existing local social groups to be a witness there than expecting them to join our group just because we tag a few Bible verses on the end of it. And we have seen far more people come to faith in Christ taking this approach than by hosting our own events. Four. Now, four is use events, but use them for friendship, not just evangelism. So we, I'm not attacking attractional events. I'm just saying broadly as the sole main way of reaching the lost. It's not working, not in our communities. In Nidri, we run a social event and hundreds of people will turn up. We've had singing contests, bingo nights, prize-given events, and we never, exclusively anyway, use these events to preach. Instead, we use them just to firm up friendships and to ensure that our building is seen as a community hub, not just as a place where you walk in and someone opens fire on you with the gospel. So we want people to feel at home among us. Now, we do, however, run two main events a year in which are overtly evangelistic. One is called our Easter uh, uh, Fry. That is basically a full English fry breakfast followed by a short gospel presentation on uh, Easter morning. That's usually full, not this year because of the virus. Uh, Our second one is our Christmas curry and quiz night. Again, usually full. We have a curry and a quiz together at the week of Christmas, and then we have an evangelistic uh, message. And pretty much 100% of all those people who come to both those attractional events, we already know and have pre-existing friendships with through our other um, social events that we run you know and so you know biblical evangelism can but b- work both informally and formally we don't have to pitch them against one another number 5 play the long game it is a slog in our communities a drawn out process taking preaching and explaining the gospel to people jesus took 3 years with the disciples to get them to understand. You know, Chris church is running uh, six-week evangelistic courses to get the gospel down, people. I'm not saying that, that they're bad and they don't work, don't hear that. I'm just saying for many other people, it's a long process. We have many guys who've come to faith in our community and, you know, the average time from someone first coming into contact with us through coming through to faith is a couple of years it was four years for me from when i first heard the gospel went to jail came out and god's opened my eyes to the truth so you know we're in we're in a marathon not a sprint when it comes to the gospel you know we don't buy people just to change the analogy we don't buy people a bicycle then expect them to win the tour de france the week after to be patient with people, long suffering with people, have to repeat ourselves constantly. The best place, though, for all of this to happen is a local, gathered, persistent community of gospel lovers who live their lives personally and communally with the intention of teaching the Bible and persuading others of the truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.